HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I've been working on a new podcast here at Heritage Radio Network. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun food-focused show for kids. We've just wrapped up our second season, so you've got more than 20 episodes to catch up on, and this week we'll be releasing the first episode of our third season all about Thanksgiving. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. We're not able to have our usual big gala fundraiser this year, but if you go to heritageradionetwork.org, you can find out more about our online auction and figure out ways that you can donate and become a member today. Today's theme, pie. Pie is my favorite part of Thanksgiving. When I was a kid, Lucinda Ray, who taught me how to make pie crust and her family, hosted us for Thanksgiving at their house in Vermont. She made one pie per person, so that year, there were eight pies. It's a lot of pie, but we made do somehow. I now usually make one or two pies, but have yet to match those early Thanksgiving where the table full of pies made such an impression on me. If you live in New York, you probably know about Bubbies, and if you don't live in New York, you probably also know about Bubbies. Bubbies is an institution. They're a favorite of their neighborhood in Tribeca, they have a location in Japan, and they ship their pies all over. 
They've been doing all the things that have become de rigueur, like transparency and sourcing, using local farms for ingredients and being a part of the community since they opened. Ron Silver is the founder of Bubby's. He opened Bubby's in 1990. 30 years is a long time in any business, especially the restaurant business. And Bubby's has weathered many storms, and they plan to be there through many more. Ron is also a painter and an entrepreneur who's now working on a cannabis project as well. As Bubby's opened 30 years ago this week, I got to have a great chat with Ron about Bubby's, Thanksgiving, his art, and more. Why don't you start by introducing yourself, and then we'll take it from there. All right, so I am Ron Silver. I am the uh, owner and founder of Bubby's Restaurant in New York City and and now Japan. Uh, awesome. Uh, so let's talk a little bit. I mean, Bubby's is a place I think that now has become part of the fabric of New York and certainly of Tribeca. Um, but how did it get started? It was just a little pop-up, right? Well, I... At the at the time, I mean, we opened in 1990, and they didn't really have the name pop up at that time. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, what it really was uh, is that you know I sort of borrowed, or uh, the, it was a closed down sort of little shop with a full kitchen, and uh, the owner was trying to sell the sell his business. Uh, and since he wasn't, you know, since he was just paying rent, I sort of convinced him to, uh, allow us to use the kitchen, um, while he was trying to sell his place. And then, uh, you know, really the whole neighborhood smelled like pie at that point because we were really just baking hundreds of pies a day. Right. And then, you know, I sort of convinced this guy to let us open up for one day, the day before Thanksgiving which really took some convincing and, uh, and then we, my partner at the time and I decided to have a Thanksgiving dinner there since it was all sort of cleared up and cleaned up and ready to sort of, uh, you know, sit in, which it hadn't been prior to us opening for the one day. It was filled with boxes and, right. uh, we had dinner and got very drunk and decided to open up the next day since the guy wasn't around anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that lasted like three weeks. And and um, being young, we all sort of forgot that that guy even existed. Right, right. He, he walked in in the middle of lunch, and I, and I was like, oh, dude, sorry about that. <laughs> he's like, yeah, whatever, just keep going. <laughs> and then um, that was, and so that was November. And I think we ended up figuring out our business and signing a lease on April 15th of next year 1991 got it got it um why pies what was the like why were pies the first thing well also somewhat of a shaggy dog story um i i i'm an artist at the time i thought that i was a writer but i'm way too lazy to be a writer <laughs> but at the time i didn't know that and uh so i was i had be, become also unemployable as a chef due to a few you know, character defects. And um, so I had gone from being a chef of a really, you know, sort of hot catering company in, in the 80s to uh, cooking eggs at Florent for, you know, and sort of doing the early morning shift. And I decided that I would try to be in the, to win the Pillsbury Bake Off. 
uh, which is to win this grand prize of basically enough money that would last me the rest of my life, which is like $25,000. <laughs> sure. And, uh, you know, and so I, you know, I decided that the thing I would enter with was pie because there really was no good pie. And I had, I had never had good pie in my life. Um, all of that is just to say that there really was good pie. I just had never had it and had no idea where to get it. And mostly you have to go to Iowa to somebody's grandma's house. Right. Um, <laughs> right. So, so, you know, basically I really started sort of, sort of learning how to make pie at that point, And I was still cooking breakfast and, uh, you know, a bunch of sort of circumstances happened where my abilities to be employed which are zero, it was discovered at the Florent restaurant where I was sort of just, I was a bit too efficient and sort of not really all that keen on taking orders from people. Right. Um, and at the same time, I was sort of found out by the Pillsbury people that I had been practicing my pie baking at my job, which made me a professional. Uh, right, because the Pillsbury Bake Off is for amateurs only. Yes. And so you know, being accused by corporate America of being a professional and being also unemployable, I decided to start a pie company. I mean, it makes sense. And so, you know, natural, natural sort of progression. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm looking at your site right now and it looks like you guys are offering about 13, no, 12 or 13 different kinds of pie. Is that normal? Do you guys offer that many pies shipped all the time or is that for Thanksgiving specific? Well, I think we sort of bulk up for Thanksgiving, but yeah. we, I don't, we usually don't try to have too much of a, uh, a, a number of how many different pies. It's just sort of what, uh, you know, it's either market driven, what looks good at the time yep. or, you know, popular demand kind of thing. Right. Of course. And so, I mean, you have pumpkin right now for Thanksgiving, you have pecan for Thanksgiving. Um, but... You know, one of the, one of the interesting things to me, or I, I mean, maybe just to me, because I just like to you know, crack myself up, but you know, the pumpkin pie recipe has not changed ever since the day we opened it. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I always find it amazing. Cause I, I mean, Bubby's has been open for 30 years and I don't often have the highest regard for young cocky 27 year olds. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, I'm sort of grateful for my younger self and, and you know, it has sort of slapped the um, ungratefulness towards young people out of me. <laughs> I love it. I wanted to ask, you know, Bubby's has been in Tribeca since its inception. Yep. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because, you know, neighborhoods in New York always change, right? I feel like it's one of the, you know, it's it's kind of a broken record to a certain extent. People complaining about, you know, oh, this neighborhood used to be so great or this and that and the other thing. And I just, I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about Tribeca as a neighborhood and what it's like now, because I know, you know, um, you spend a ton of time there and what it was like then and what those changes have meant for the restaurant or if you guys have just sort of, you know, stayed straight ahead doing your thing and the rest and the, the neighborhood is the neighborhood. Well, that is a tough, big question. Um, first of all, I love Tribeca and, you know, I really have sort of quote unquote grown up in Tribeca. Right. 
Um, so, you know, one of the reasons that, that Bubby's was able to open in Tribeca in 1990 is because it was very much of a, a backwater. There were no, uh, there were no traffic lights really down here. And although that, you know, the train really does run well, it seemed like it was off the beaten path in a way. <laughs> right. Uh, and it really was off the beaten path. There were no real grocery stores, although there was this giant sort of funky uh, health food store that in the, in the vein that existed prior to Whole Foods, uh, which had a smell to it, kind of patchouli and rotting vegetables. I love that you bring that up because I, <laughs> I mean, that it's like a very specific memory and I hope people listening like know that smell and I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah. I, I remember that place, but it also was just like a type of store in yes. like the 80s and i i mean i just like or I, 70s yep uh you know I, and it really was existing in, in every town and really the same mothbally weird people worked in each one 100 <laughs> percent, absolutely sort and of. it was it was like everybody was macrobiotic and yeah there were probably like pictures pre, of pre-brooklyn people kind yeah of hipsters yeah before they had a club and there were pictures of sri chinmoy on the wall lifting impossibly heavy things and Exactly. All of that. Yeah. And then some sort of very um, sort of what I would call limp burdock root and <laughs> things like that. Totally. Sort of. And, and um, I mean, you know, and, and so, yeah. And, and you mentioned, I mean, you know, Tribeca being off the beaten path. I mean, it's, you yeah. know, in, in a way, I mean, you fast forward, I'm a little bit younger than you are, but you fast forward to when my wife and I first started the Brooklyn Kitchen in Williamsburg, and it was kind of the same thing, right? Like, we were able to get a space at the time that was cheap enough, that seemed really expensive at the time, but like was cheap enough for us to actually give a business a go um, and kind of try to make it a reality. Well, you did make it a reality, and it was, a, I mean, yeah, it's like the prototypical thing. Uh, you know that that Brooklyn market was amazing. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I I mean I think that the you know basically Tribeca was kind of like Williamsburg back then, kind yep. of for even even back before that. Yeah. Uh, and you know the, it was very 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 quiet down here. There were certain things. And some of the people who were down here then are still here now. There's sort of like this underground web of the of people who have been here for a very long time uh and then over the years of course it's turned into uh i, I mean as tribeca has gone so has new york city and so has a lot of the real estate in america and a lot of the real estate in the world yep so um i guess i have <clears throat> a certain kind of opinion about that uh which probably uh, is not that popular, but you know, I don't, I don't feel that real estate uh, values skyrocketing like that really serve any kind of community purpose. So, you know, I have, I have, um, I have things to say about how the development of all of that stuff has gone, and at the same time, there's a, a real sweetness to Tribeca that uh, that is pretty consistent and like i said there's still you know even though it would seem that there aren't a whole bunch of people that are sort of original you know kind of 
people who have been around forever, there, there really are quite a few of those people. Mm. So I like that. And, you know, amongst those people, I feel like sort of, you know, like the, the usurper or, you know, like newcomer. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like that, that is a, uh, also a timeless New York thing, right? Is that, you know, and, and really with anywhere um, that, you know, it, unless you were, unless you were the, you know, the indigenous uh, person to right. the area, like, you know, I think it's healthy to have a little bit of a feeling like you, you're, you're still a newcomer, even though you've been there for 30 years. Yeah. I'm sort of grateful that they'll still have me. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, 30 years is no, is, is no small feat. Um, congratulations that, that Bubby's has, has, you know, lasted and continues Thank to be so much. what it is today. I mean, you know, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot, there's so much talk in the restaurant industry about what is, you know, what's happening day to day with what can be done in restaurants, you know, around coronavirus and what can't be. Um, but even in, in longer term of, you know, these kind of like, very difficult uh, conversations around like how many small restaurants are going to make it at, you know, past the other side of this. Um, you know, some of them were doing okay and now we're facing more shutdowns because, you know, by and large, the public has just been stupid um, about, you know, letting their guard down and coronavirus continues to spread. And so, you know, as a place that's been around for 30 years, Bubby's has weathered a number of things before. Um, things like, blackouts like 9-11, like Hurricane Sandy. And I'm wondering if there are any lessons from weathering those things. And, and you know, not that they're exactly the same, but like you made it through those to the other side and we're not through the other side yet of coronavirus. Are there any things that you guys learned that might be, you know, valuable? Well, um, yes. Uh, uh, um, you know, one of the things... For, for me, which is maybe, I don't know, a little weird. Is, uh, I, I grew up in Utah in a place that was very community-oriented. Community uh, and, you know, it's Utah. Lots of, you know, zero families have less than, like, 11 kids. Right. <laughs> right. And so there's lots of kids taking care of other kids and working, uh, getting stuff done together. It's this sort of real sort of work ethic place. And when I was young, uh, you know, all the kids had jobs. It's, uh, so we, you know, I've always just sort of been, uh, you know, felt like a worker. And um, so when something like, uh, a blackout or Hurricane Sandy or 9-11 happens um, or has happened, it's been very much my own uh, fallback position to make sure that we're there for the community uh, at whatever, you know, like the, the business of it is irrelevant, but the uh, community part of it is, you know, really the only thing that matters. Right. Uh, and so... We've had quite a bit of practice at shifting into that mode and figuring out what to do. And, you know, the blessing that, that you know, that Bubby's has uh, is, a, you know, we have a crew. Some of these guys have been working there for 25 years or, you know, or since they were 14 and they're 30, mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. 
Um, so, you know, we've really been through a lot of stuff together and, um, we have a pretty flat organization and, uh, you know, I, what I would say a fairly human organization in that everybody knows everybody's stuff and we all are sort of ready to do our thing. Um, so I think that that mentality has definitely gotten us through this much of this, uh, this pandemic. Uh, and I think that, you know, sometime in the, you know, the mid stretch of the real shutdown, you know, after March and, you know, I, I, when everybody was sort of settled down maybe a, a bit, um, you know, we were communicating a bunch about what we were doing and at home. And, you know, I, I, w I really ended up, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a painter and, uh, you know, and I, I, could, I, I really tried to surround myself with stuff that I wanted to do with art supplies and all kinds of things, books that I wanted to read. And what I ended up doing was cooking um, and, you know, I teaching myself how to make bread and things like that, uh, you know, which also just, you know, for whatever it's worth, <clears throat> you know, this bread discussion is interesting because, you know, as, as you are well aware, every, lots of people started making bread and doing sourdough. And I find that to be amazing, the sort of natural inclination yeah. <clears throat> to want to do that. But I, I sort of had this extra impetus of, uh, and I, I wasn't really aware that anybody was going to be doing that, but I have this sourdough at Bubby's that we make pancakes with that's from 1890 and i sort of realized that that was going to die if i didn't take care of it right because if you aren't <clears throat> if the restaurant's closed and you're not using it every day right <laughs> yeah and it's just something that you take for granted yeah uh, but then I mean, it really did dawn on me that i you know the thing was sitting over there um and so i was feeding it for a few days and then i was like well i don't i don't know why i'm feeding this and so i'm not going to make bread and i really had never made bread before in my life uh, so it was a a really nice learning curve and i think that it really you know for whatever for whatever it's worth you know my my job is really as a, a creative so and and uh i guess just keeping that energy going and making sure that we're here for the community has really been the driving philosophy behind it but i would say that we are also blessed with a really good corner with a lot of space outside and yep. so we've been able to do um you know a, a a good business considering the environment yeah you know we're not we're not you know we're not we're anywhere near where we should be and you know we're only operating with half the seats but we've had a really good, um, I don't know, people seem to be happy at Bubby's right now. And, we, you know, we're, we're busy. Good. Yeah, that's great. I mean, so I think the bread thing is really, is very interesting because you're right. <clears throat> Lots of people, um, myself included, um, you know, started baking bread. I, I started a new sourdough starter in April of this mm -hmm. year. Um, I actually just before starting this interview went to check on. I have a I'm I'm rising some dough for a loaf of bread and also some bialis right now. 
um, that, I'll, that I'll bake later. And, and it, you know, for me, I mean, as someone who's done lots of fermentation in my life and, and things, I had had sourdough starters before, but for whatever reason, it never was something I never, it, it always was too much of a chore. And I never managed yeah. to make it into something that I was doing regularly that just fit into my life. And, you know, being home all the time starting in March and April made it so that I was able to just incorporate it and come to kind of a, you know, a natural, I guess. Uh, rhythm. Yeah, a rhythm with it, which, you know, in the restaurant, obviously, you guys have a natural rhythm with it when you're busy, right? Is that you're growing the sourdough every day and it's going into the pancakes and things and now you're baking bread and you're doing that. And for me at home, it had never fallen into a rhythm, but now it has. And it's, so it's become very nice to be able to just do it. And, you know, I think one of the reasons a lot of people are doing it is because it also is something they could control and it was mm -hmm. something they could do and succeed at when all of the rest of the world was kind of like, we have no control over any of this stuff. Well, it's also like a high quality moment in the day to, you know, chomp into some fresh bread. <laughs> Absolutely. That does not suck. No, um, <laughs> never. You know, but the, you know, I, I, you know, when you bring up fermentation, it's like, a, for me, it's like, I, I've been fermenting things forever. I mean, we, we make pickles and sauerkraut and all kinds, you know, malolactic, pickles for the table and all kinds of stuff like that but and and all of my dough experience has been about you know like keeping things cold and making sure that the layers are forming right so it's like making flaky pastry is a lot different than bread right there's a different philosophy entirely and you know to me it really just felt like you know sometime at the, while i you know during this sort of whole bread epiphany you know period of time i read some you know discovery that they had made in egypt at the you know like a, a mile away from the pyramids where the sort of bread baking was taking place uh and they found it's like five thousand ovens wow you know it's like damn man those guys <laughs> really were making some that is a serious factory five thousand right. ovens yeah a lot of labor to make those pyramids i guess yeah so I, it, it really took to, it really felt sort of like the foundation of civilization. So I, I guess, you know, not to, not to disagree with your, with what you're saying about people wanting to have something they can control. But I also think that under those circumstances where you're really left to your own mind for a weird amount of time. And I, I was by myself and my family was in Pennsylvania. So I was really, mm -hmm. I've, I've never been alone that long in my life. And so I found it to be like a sort of, you know, a, a taproot to this sort of foundation of civilization and, you know, not just in a philosophical way, but in a real way that sort of where this floating stuff in the air managed manages to mingle with this stuff that people grow out of the ground and it creates a sort of you know alchemy of bread all of us at hrn have been keeping busy despite working and recording from home this fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, 
there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. Was there a lot of cooking in your house growing up? I mean, did, you know, was there bread baking? Was there, you know, things things of that nature? Was there pie? Um, first, I mean, my we, we had a lot of cooking going on. Uh, but I would say that any bread that was baked came sort of frozen and part and sort of partially risen or part baked mm. or something. I mean, I grew up in the seventies, so you know the freezer was uh, you know often used. <laughs> sure. Um, and you know, my mother was also very experimental. So she was sort of had gourmet magazine around and, you know, working out of the time life cookbooks and sort of trying to make weird breed legs of lamb. And, you know, my neighbors across the street were making fried pork chops and jello salad. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like that. Um, is there anything on the menu at Bubby's that is like a, you know, like a throwback to any foods from childhood? Say that again. Are there are there any dishes on the menu at Bubby's that are like from your childhood, like things that remind you of growing up? Well, you know, I'm surrounded by saner people than me. <laughs> Otherwise, we really would have sort of Miracle Whip and bologna sandwiches. <laughs> sure. Uh, so I would say that the idea of the thing, uh, the thing that I grew up with, which is really just the sort of what you have at the table with your family kind of thing, mm. just what's on the American table. Yep. That really is the thing that drives Bubby's. Yeah. What, what's on the American table? How did it get there? Uh, you know, because because a lot of these things do have super interesting stories. Some of them are very sort of quirky American stories that you know might you might see on a giant billboard for the world's most giant something, right? Ball of yarn or something. Sure. Um, but you know, I, it, it's it's I I would say that my childhood very much formed what I view as actual quality food. Um, you know, just like if you grew up in uh, Bologna, you would have a very different point of view from Salt Lake city. Right. Um, but it, you know, still what your parents cooked, you know, what your grandma cooks or what you're having at holidays. Those are the things that you really 
dream of. I, I mean, think. what I, what I think of when I look at the Bubby's menu is that it is a you know it it is almost like the ideal neighborhood restaurant. Yeah, which is something that I feel like used to exist a lot more in New York City and in other places, and I see fewer and fewer places that I feel like are like that. Um, where you well, can get breakfast, really where you can get lunch, you can get soup, sandwich, you know, and then you have sides that might be specific to a place. I mean, you know, not every neighborhood restaurant is going to have spicy broccoli. That feels like a very, you know, kind of like a New York kind of thing to me, but, you know, sound sounds super delicious or like house smoked salmon bagel plate. That's very New York specific, but having eggs Benedict or having a burger or fried chicken, I mean, these things feel very Americana for less for for lack of a better way to describe them. Well, definitely. Uh, I, I I mean, I think one of the main things for me is that it is set up. It, it that that is the the feeling of Bubby's, and it also is set up to really interact with uh, local farms. Yep. Which you know, which is uh, something that. <clears throat> I try to do as much as possible. Um, so I, I think that the simplicity of the menu and, you know, I'm not, I'm not out to, uh, you know, like get any Michelin stars or anything like that. Um, and I really mostly just stay to myself or try to not be too, um, out there, uh, as a, you know, PR whoring it up kind of thing. Sure. Uh, so I, I think that it, uh, the the neighborhood home table aspect. I mean, I think it really is in a way like trying to get towards an, the ideal American neighborhood diner kind of setup that has quality food and an, a real interaction and uh, uh, well a relationship in its community that is beyond just sort of like you know driving through and getting a happy meal and driving off because that is not really so much community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to go back and talk a little bit. You mentioned um, thinking initially that you were a writer, um, but then realizing that you were more of a painter, right? Or artist in that way. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your art and sort of what that journey looked like. Um, I mean, right now you have your studio is also your office, which is upstairs from the restaurant. Uh, well, actually, we moved, we closed down Highline Bubbies. Oh, got it. And uh, and now our office, my studio and office are about a block from Bubbies in Tribeca. Got it. Um. So, well, either way, but I want to talk yeah. about I want to talk about your art, um, and sort of how it fits into sort of your your life as well, because I was struck when when you know when we last saw each other that you were in a space that allowed you to sort of wear these many hats. And so that you were, you know, painting in the space, you were taking phone calls in the space, you were working on bubbies in the space, you were working on other projects in the space. And I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, your art and your process and, and sort of what, what kind of stuff you're working on now, I guess, for art. Well, so, you know, for one thing, I think I, I have been, um, conscientious about trying to set myself up so I could be in a sort of centralized spot. Uh, and 
you know, I just not to bring up a whole other subject, but I, I have a, a cannabis. Uh, I invented something for cannabis edibles. Uh, that so so I also have a lab that I work out of to sort of work with science on that. So I, I kind of have uh, so many things going on that I really uh, it, to have them in one spot makes it possible to do them. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do it. Sure. Um, and you know, I suppose that that's a sort of like outside explanation, and then. The real thing is that I sort of want to be as close to uh, my paint and canvas as possible. Mm. So if I just set up all the other shit around that, then I can look like I'm doing something while I'm really doing what I want to do. I mean, are you the kind of artist where do you set out to have specific time that you are working on it, or is it just when it comes to you, you need to be near the, near the canvas? You know, I, I sort of just, I, well, well, for one thing, I want to say that, you know, in my, in my, when I'm in my studio, I really paint all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. like it could just, I just feel like I'm constantly in the middle of, of, uh, paintings and thinking about what's going to come next or just which, you know, the other thing that I have to decide sometimes, especially now during <clears throat> lean times, which mm. painting I'm going to sacrifice to put a new painting on top of. Mm. And so, like, I sort of have this conversation going with myself all the time. Uh, but, you know, during the lockdown, I was so busy doing all this um, baking uh, that I didn't paint at all. And... um I think that there's a kind of learning that happens when you don't do something uh, that you really have been putting a lot of effort to and pieces just sort of fall in place in your brain. And I feel like, you know, when I came out of that, that there was really um, kind of an amazing transformation in the way that I'm like approaching painting. Mm. Um so I've been really having a, a really an, ama- an amazing time doing it uh, in that I, I feel that something was really freed up. And um, I, I guess the other thing is that since I, I don't have a real aspiration to be, you know, sort of the world's most famous, greatest painter, um, I feel that you know i'm within my own liberty to do what i want to do and and that experimentation has really been fun in that i've you know i've really been playing with colors that i never played with before and sort of learning about old art materials that other people used Mm. and trying to recreate that you know some of that being like paints that like Francis Bacon or Picasso used because they could buy it off the shelf cheap. Hmm. And you know, that, that paint's not really available anymore. Right. So it's sort of like, you, you know, looking towards color schemes and trying to understand the, the math of color and distance and applying that in a sort of experimental 
way where I don't have a complete plan, but I'm just sort of willing to flow with it. <clears throat> and I, 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 I don't know if any of that makes sense, but I feel like I'm uh, sort of in a very wild um, zone with painting at the moment. Sure. And how do you choose your subject matter? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at your site right now, ronsilver.studio, and I'm, I'm amazed at kind of the, you know, I feel, I feel like often artists focus on a, on one thing. They're either painting portraits or they're painting still life or they're painting animals or they're painting nature. But I mean, you have paintings here that span kind of all of that. You have a painting of a rhinoceros, you have a painting of eyeballs, you have a painting of Lenny Bruce. I mean, you're, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I find that really, you know, I find that really interesting. Do you just hit upon something and you decide I'm going to paint, paint plum blossoms and then you go after that painting? You know, it's in a way, what I would say is, uh, I mean, first of all, I smoke a ton of weed. <laughs> so that's what, that's a sure. Uh, and B, I'm surrounded by all kinds of, you know, uh, different, you know, like I have restaurants in Japan, so I spend time yep. in Japan in museums or, you know, with I, one of my friends there is a, uh, a Zen monk at a temple. So I like, you know, check out the art there. I'm like, oh, I wish I want to do those watercolors, mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I guess for me, it's just a sort of conversation that I have going in my head about, um, uh, you know, studying different artists or different type of art and sort of seeing how to be able to play with that myself, I guess. Mm. I don't know. It's a, I'm, I'm sort of just willing to, uh, I, like I'm not, I, I yes, I don't have a consistent subject matter for right. sure. Right. But in the long run, I do. It does start sort of grouping out into like, you know, boxing matches or weird scenes or sort of allegorical uh, paintings. So I, I feel like it it's starting to categorize itself. And at the same time, I still feel like I'm just learning so much that I don't really want to limit myself to anything. Mm. It's like I, I just want to be sort of free to learn how this stuff goes. Yep. And, you know, I'm, I'm really not trying to impress anybody either. Yeah. Well, I'm impressed. So for whatever that's worth. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, I just, what I meant to say is that I am really happy when people like the paintings, Sure. but I don't really feel that I have to, you know, some people really do uh, study all their lives to be artists mm. And, you know, they, they work really hard on it and they know the language and the language is really important to be able to discuss art. But I, I, I don't have that. And, uh, you know, I, I do have intention, but I don't have the ability to, uh, you know, act like I went to uh, RISD and got an MFA. Sure, sure. Well, I, I would encourage everybody to take a look um, at the site, because I think there's some really, there's some really neat art there. There's some very approachable stuff and there's some stuff that's very, I will say reasonably priced. So if anyone is looking for gifts, um, oh, you know, some of the stuff is, so really, is really cool. And, uh, you know, I think would look good on just about anybody's wall. So I'll tell you what, if I, if I make 125 bucks off a painting, it's the best $125 I've ever made in my life ever. It makes me so happy.
I mean, when you get to do what you love and then you get to get something out of it, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what does the other side of the pandemic look like, do you think? Um, you know, do you think that we return to this is something I've been grappling with a lot lately? Like people talk about it being the way it used to be, but I feel like that's a that's sort of a misguided approach. I feel like we will all we're always gonna be different and time only moves forward. Well, that is a just gigantic question. Of um, and I guess, you know, I think my personal opinion about that is, is uh, I, you know, I very much hope it doesn't go back to anything like what it was before, because that, that was just getting to be some serious bullshit in my mind, especially in New York City. Yep. And, you know, one of the things uh, that makes New York great is if young people can come here and think that they're cool, even though they might actually be cool, uh, and throw down with all the other people and have fun doing it. And, you, you know, and, you know, if you suck at it, then you go work with the other guy and it kind of like makes for a better world to have that. But if you just have, um, ATM machines, Dwayne Reed and apartments that are $14,000 a month, you just get a giant collection of idiots and assholes. And I don't really care for that. And it, I find it to be sterile, boring, artificial, and full of sort of weird STDs that I don't really want to know about. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's the thing that forever, I mean, has, you know, for generations has brought people to New York um, and, and other places as well. But, you know, the idea that you can go somewhere and you can kind of plant yourself down. And when you have that kind of insane energy of being 22, 23, 24 years old and say, you know, fuck it, I'm going to give this thing a shot and I'm going to try it out. And I think that the, you know, the, the New York of, say, a year ago um, was becoming less and less friendly and available to people who were 22, 23 years old to just come and do that. Yeah. I mean, I have a 24 year old, uh, you know, and he's out there making it with roommates like, but you know, he's a local kid and, and he grew up in New York, so he understands it. And, you know, if he has to, he can come and, you know, grab something at his mom's house or my house. Right. You know, he's, he's, but you know, like to move here from, uh, you know, Iowa, <clears throat> um, hopefully wearing a mask kids yeah it makes it fucking hard to to come here i mean right now is the best time to come here for that kid yeah for sure because it's full of opportunities and you know if you're if you're ready to do a, a nice job I, uh, new york city is a city that needs to be rebuilt with a spirit of sort of you know new yorkness to it absolutely i mean this conversation reminds me of an interview i once heard with the poet gerard malanga who I think actually was from Ohio, maybe not Iowa, I think he was from Ohio, but you know, he moved to New York on a whim in the 60s and like slept on a floor and then became Andy Warhol's assistant. 
Right. Right. When like, I mean, he was, you know, literally just like sleeping on a floor and had enough money for cigarettes and, you know, and that was that. And you could do that. Exactly. Yeah. You could do that and you could make enough money babysitting or doing whatever so that you could come and, and be a part of something and create a life in your 20s. And so I think that, you know, I think I think that's a great uh, I think that's a great thing to look towards the future is to hope. And, you know, all of all of my 22 and 23 year old listeners, I hope you're out there and that you're thinking about moving to New York. Yeah, come and throw down. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, uh, since this episode is airing, uh, you know, this will air next week, which is right before Thanksgiving, um, you know. Bubbies, will Bubbies be open on Thanksgiving? We are open, and I think we're booked. Uh, you know, we have obviously a lot of constrictions, yeah. and uh, you know, hoping. Well, you know, we're installing these heaters for uh, the outside, just in case it's not blowing hail sideways. Yeah, uh, and I think we're just remaining flexible, and uh, we are also selling a lot of sort of uh, boxed whole sort of complete dinners cool um so people should definitely look for that uh and you know even if you listen to this after thanksgiving you should still you know find your way over to bubby's um and you know not only support them and the community but you know have yourself a, a excellent meal please come on over thanks for listening to feast your ears today you can get more information on Bubbies and getting one of their signature pies shipped right to your door at bubbies.com. That's B-U-B-B-Y-S.com. Ron's art can be seen and ordered from ronsilver.studio, R-O-N-S-I-L-V-E-R dot S-T-U-D-I-O. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach out to me if you have any questions. My email is harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.